We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Back in the day, David Williams was a 20-something multimillionaire professional poker star living the life in Vegas. You know, I, I would say I had one of the most incredible lives I could ever imagine. On Toray Show, the guests are always winners. Out with women all the time, partying, and I hung out with celebrities a lot, and traveled all the time, didn't have a care in the world. My job was just playing poker tournaments, you know. I was I was living the life, you know, the high life. Had a Bentley at 25, you know, living in a high-rise condo in Vegas. I mean, yeah, I was I was the man in the materialistic sense. It was a great, fun life. But we, we, we grow, we change. Big David has stepped away from poker to focus on his daughter. My life right now is really single dad. Uh, I have a six-year-old by myself. Don't let the cute faces fool you. It's hard work taking care of little kids by yourself. But the man who made it to the final table of the World Series of Poker in 2004 and got within a few chips the title but ended up losing in a head-to-head matchup, that guy now spends his days getting his daughter to and from school and making her dinner and constructing their Halloween costumes, and he couldn't be happier. And we're pretty into Halloween costumes. We always coordinate. Oh. She picks, and I don't like to half-ass anything. So <laughs> I had to have movie-authentic costumes, and I, I, I designed them. I, I made these. Like, I had to have a seamstress sew. I ordered all the parts from mine. Welcome to Torre Show. I'm Torre, and on this show, I talk to successful people about their success and see what they know that can help the rest of us rise. I talk to rappers, business studs, athletes, academics, doctors, and today, a poker star who really lets me get inside his head and hear what he's thinking and feeling when he's at the poker table. David explains what goes through his mind after his cards hit the table and how it's possible to win a poker tournament without ever looking at your cards. He talks about the importance of self-discipline and the value of being truly present. He talks about working with a poker mindset coach and the new hotshots you've never heard of who are playing the best poker in the world right now. But put poker aside for a minute because this is kind of a special episode because we get to see the personal evolution of David. He starts off as a poker pro, breaking it down to the atom and winning. It's grossed over $9 million. But over time... He flows into being a devoted single father who puts poker away so he can be there for his daughter every day. I know there's lots of amazing men and women doing the solo parenting thing and killing it, and this is a salute to all of them. 
but I'm pointing it out because I invited David on the show to talk poker. And as we sat together talking, I learned about his family situation. And it really warmed my heart to hear this tough poker guy grow up and grow soft. So this conversation became partly about poker and partly about David allowing himself to grow enthusiastically into fatherhood. So this app then becomes a chance to learn from a poker pro who killed it at the highest levels and also a sort of character study, a look at the journey of a guy who sat atop the mountain but now is happy just being a dad. But we'll get into the heartwarming dad stuff later. We start with poker. What do you have to know to be a great poker player, to get to your level? Um, you know, I think the number one thing to get to the level, to elite or the upper levels of poker is self-control. A lot of people think, oh, it's math or I'm not good at math or, you know, it's just too much to remember. And, and poker is not really about memory and math. I mean, on a, a basic level, it is, you know, like entry level stuff you need to know. You need to know basic fractions and but there's not that many calculations in poker. I mean, there's really 52 cards, and there's only a few scenarios that come up that once you know those and the math, you know, a flush draw, you know, what percentage you are to get there, things like that, to, to kind of go to that next level, I think I always say my biggest enemy is myself, and you have to really be able to control yourself and your emotions. And I think the best players have better control. They're not perfect because we all make mistakes. Even the best poker players make mistakes, but – they make fewer mistakes because they have better self-control than the amateurs. What do you mean by control? Well, control of emotions. Like, you know, when we play a hand, say me and you were to play right now, and I have two aces and you have two threes, and we put all our money in, I'm an 80% favorite. That means four to one, you know. But that's not 100%. And a lot of people take that, you know, to mean, oh, well, I'm going to win. I have the best hand. And when they lose, when the board comes out and there's a three, and at the end of it, you, the pot get push, gets pushed your way, you just have to accept that if we were to do this 100 million times, 80 million times I'm going to win, but 20 million you're going to win. That's just math. That's how it works. And you have to be, accept that. And you have to not let that bother you. So when you have those aces and you get all in, you lose, it's business as usual. Go to the next hand, and, and that's part of math but a lot of people just oh man and they start to freak out they want to get those chips back they'll play bad the next hand they will let the bad fortune affect future results yeah you sound like you're talking about the amnesia that professional athletes talk about you have a bad play you just go on on to the next one but especially when you're talking about money which is so easily quantifiable how do you avoid that thing that so many of us fall into in so many games um when you lose your lead, you lose an amount of money, or I was I was beating this guy by, you know, whatever, and now I'm, and you want to get back, right. To like, right? You're sort of chasing the advantage you had, and that makes you into a lesser player. How do you avoid doing that? Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I've lost many tournaments chasing a peak of where I was. You know, I had two hundred thousand. I'm down to forty. I got to get, and next thing you know, I'm out the door. But I've also had many comebacks where I've just stayed patient and focused and grinded. And two days later, I'm still in to have taught me that it's not the end when you lose from a peak and that that is natural, the ups and downs of your chip stack. Like every now and then, you might just steamroll a five-day, six-day tournament and just be at the chip lead every day. Or you'll watch a tournament and see some guy do that. That happens. But more often than not, the guy who wins that tournament had ups and downs. And you have to just know that that's natural. That's part of the game. And 
Yeah, I mean, it's practice, really. It just takes a lot of time of having that happen. So if the peaks and valleys happen to everybody and the math is easy to learn, what separates you from so many other players who don't usually get out of the first day, let's say, of the main event? Well, I have better patience. That's a key. You have to have a lot of patience. You have to, to wait for your card. To wait for the right moment. Not necessarily the right cards, but the right moment. You know, like to wait for a player that you think is getting out of line to get out of line when the opportunity is op- when it's opportune, when you have a good hand or when you have a hand better than what you think he might have. It's just all about patience, and I think that's another really key thing that most people don't have, even if they think they do. But it's not. But there's another extreme to that. There's also people that are just too patient that are too tight and, and just wait too long, and it just never happens. So I think the skill is knowing when to be patient and when to kind of put the pedal to the metal and when to back up. You know, when to to drive that perfect speed to really know what you're doing. You really want to flow in the opposite speed of the table. So if, if people, if everybody at the table is playing wild and crazy, then you want to play very patient and, you know, sit back and let it come to you. If everybody's being really tight and not playing any hands, then you want to ramp it up a notch and start playing more hands and attacking those players and, and trying to accumulate the chips from the, the two patient players. But you have to be alert of how the table's playing and how they're perceiving you how they're perceiving themselves and how they think you see them, all these levels of perception you have to take into account and then use all that to figure out what you should be doing. And that just can't, that can't be taught. That's something you learn just over time. Yeah, I mean, at that level, it's beyond the math. It's beyond the it's psychology. Yeah, and your understanding of how the other players perceive you and everybody else at the table. And then how they think you perceive them. Not just how you perceive them, but how they think you perceive them. Right. Like if they think you think they're a maniac, then you know, okay, they think I think they're a maniac, so they're going to not be a maniac because they think I think that. But I really know that already. So it's like levels. You know, Level one is what I think. Level two is what you think. Level three is what I think you think. Right. And it just keeps going. Right. And you have to kind of figure out where on that level people are and apply that to the situation. I mean, it's the psychology is, is the... Is the is the essence of poker, and that's the most complicated part. Well, okay, so take me through a hand and, and what you are thinking. You know, you know, a big hand, a big table, you know, serious players are there. And, and you know, uh, uh, you know uh, what are you thinking as you go through? You get your cards, and then the, and then the flop is coming. So the, what, the, what, the first thing the I'm process? thinking is my hand, the strength of my hand. Is it good? Is it bad? If it's really good... Okay, I'm going to play it. If it's really bad, I'm most likely not going to play it. But I look at my position. Where am I at in relation to the blinds and then the dealer button? If I'm going to be first to act, I obviously want to play better hands because there are more people behind me who can find something, who could do something. If I'm last to act, I can open my range, they say, play more hands. Then I also want to think about the players behind me or the players with the blinds. Are they active players? Are they players who are not? Have they recently lost a big pot and they're looking to get in action? Are they tight? Are they distracted? Is this guy on his phone right now and he just doesn't seem like he's playing his best? How have I been playing? Have they been paying attention? Have I been speeding, going crazy, or have I been tight? Are they even watching that? Or are they not paying attention when they're not in the hands versus me? Have me and this person had a conflict before today or in the past at another table, a previous day months ago, maybe a different tournament? All those things I think about in a matter of seconds. You know, it's like you have to add all that up. 
Then you say, okay, how many chips do I have? How many chips do all the players who could still be in pots with me have in relation to where the blinds are? Like, let's say the blind, the big blind is 1,000 chips, and we've only got 20,000. Then we don't have that many chips to actually maneuver throughout this hand, so the decisions are going to be reduced, which means you have to be a little more cautious. Whereas if you're deeper stacked, say we've got 200,000 chips, then there's a lot of room to maneuver and do things in this hand. So it's going to be a lot more complex, but I can take a little more liberties because there's more room to kind of create different situations in this pot. So you have to be aware of that also. You barely discussed the actual cards there. And that's something I think beginners, people new to poker, don't realize is that your cards are some of, one of the least important things that matters at a poker tournament or at a table. And there's a famous story about one of my favorite players, and I don't think she plays much any, anymore. Her name is Annette Oberstad, and I believe she's Swedish. She's Scandinavian for sure. Uh, so in gambling in the United States, you have to be 21 years old, right, to play poker. Almost every poker tournament, except for Indian reservations, have different rules. But just to say 21. Well, in Europe, the gambling age in some countries is 18 or 19. And the World Series of Poker has a European edition. And they had a World Series of Poker Europe, I believe the year, this was like 2007 or six for the first time. The main event was 10,000 euros to buy in. First place is going to be over a million euros. Well, a girl, not many people knew, named Annette, 19 years old, female, which in females in poker just aren't very prevalent. They're just, you don't see a lot of it. And right. I think it's because it's just a male-dominated industry and it's not very friendly to females. But anyways, a 19-year-old girl came in and won this tournament, just crushed everyone for six days. But there was a story of a, an accomplishment she had. She was an online poker player before that. She once played a tournament on the computer where she took a sticky paper and put it on top of her monitor where you see your whole cards, where, where your cards you're dealt. So she would never know what she had. And she played the tournament strictly bait. And this is even online. So there's actually not physical people in front of you to get a read on if they're nervous or not. Strictly based on betting patterns. So what the people were betting and how much they're betting and how often they have been playing hands. Like watching their tendencies. Like, okay, this guy's playing a lot of hands. This guy's not. And she played a tournament with a sticky tape or a sticky paper over her screen where she could never see her own cards. And she won the tournament online. And this was documented. I mean, people, someone was there. This was seen. Sure. And she did a video while doing it where she had no idea what she had. And when you watch the video, you can see her cards. And it's clear she didn't know what she had because she would have like a seven and a two. And she's re-raising people, making folds. And sometimes she folded the best hand because she could never look. So she didn't know. But she played a tournament without ever seeing her cards. I think they said she looked once or twice when it was already all in to just see what she had. But that was it other than when it turned over and shows you at the end. But And she won the tournament, which proves that you don't always need to know your hand to win a tournament. Now, obviously, that's, that, was a, uh, that was a theoretical experiment. Sure. There's nothing gained from not looking at your hand. You might as well take advantage of that. I'm not advocating anyone out here to, I'm just going to play without ever looking at my cards, because why would you not? That's, of course, you want that info. You have a huge edge looking at your cards versus not. <laughs> but right. she was showing a point on a video, and I don't even think when she filmed the video – her point was she wasn't even going to win, I think. She thought, I'm just going to show you that you can play without your cards. That's not what matters. She's going to use well-timed aggression and, and like falling back at the right moments, and she just happened to also win, which showed how much of a badass she really is. So the, the cards, and you think you could do the same thing? I mean, I don't think I would necessarily win. I don't think she would say she's going to win. More often than not, she's not. I mean, even looking at your cards, if you're the best, you're not going to win more often than not. But I could definitely show you. 
I've played hands before in like charity events and fun things where I don't look and I've been able to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah, because the tendencies of the other players are is more important to you than what you actually. Of have. course, of course, your opponents. It's all that really truly matters. I mean, if you have a guy opening every hand, raising and raising and raising relentlessly. More often than not, that means they're raising with a bad hand because math strictly says you're not going to get a premium hand nine out of ten hands. Sure, it could happen. There's statistical anomalies. But if you see a player, like say we're at a table and you're raising every hand, I'm going to deduce, okay, he's messing around because most of the time he doesn't have a good hand there. So I'm going to re-raise him sometimes. And if I re-raise you big and you've got junk because you're raising every hand, more often than not, you're going to give it up. And I'm able to deduce that. Now, obviously, every now and then I might make a mistake and choose the time when you actually have the big hand, and then you might re-raise me again, and I'll say, okay, he's really got it, and I'll fold. Or I might say he thinks I'm just targeting him because he's opening a lot of hands, which happens a lot. A player will open a lot of hands, somebody will play back at them, and they will think, well, this guy's only playing back at me because I've been opening a lot of hands. Yeah. And they'll play back at them. And then the person who played back will say, well, I really got it, and you're like, oh, oh shit. I saw bad I, timing, but that's what it's all about—the timing, figuring out when someone's messing around, when they're not, when you can mess around, when you can't. And I run into that problem a lot because I'm very aggressive and I play a lot of pots, and I'll be steamrolling a table, and someone will play back at me. And it took a long time for me to learn. You know what? If they play back at you and it's very rare, they usually play back at you because they have it. Fold, next hand, reattack. Now, if they keep playing back at you, okay, they've decided, they're tired, they're, they're trying to say there's a new sheriff in town, now we got a battle and we got to figure it out, but if you're playing every hand and someone finally takes a stand, it's okay to let them have one. I saw a hand you played online where you went in with a 7-2, and the announcer said, that is the worst hand, of course he's going to drop, oh wow, he's in, and then you flopped a 7-2. I, I ended up making a full house. I remember this hand. So sometimes those bad hands can plan out. But why did you even decide to go in with the 7-2 to begin with? So that hand was a lot of uh, personal. Off-suit. That was a lot of personal things. So the, the person huh. in the pot with me was a guy named Dwight Pilgrim. He's actually a New York poker player, a good guy, a friend of mine. I haven't spoken to him in many years, but he was a nice guy. And Dwight and me had a lot of, uh, we battled a lot at the tables. There was a lot of, like, I wouldn't say tension because, like I say, we liked each other, we got along. But at the tables, we always wanted to get the best of each other. And Dwight was fairly active, and I knew Dwight would, uh, he was playing a lot of hands. And I knew that if I were able to beat him with the seven deuce and show him that hand, it would likely cause him to do what we call in poker tilt, which is, you know, be frustrated and make bad decisions down the line. So I was... My, my goal, because I was in position, which meant I was able to act after him, so I'm more likely going to win hands in position, especially when I raise someone, because they're going to fold more often than not, and if they call, they're going to have to play acting first, and I get to go second, which is a huge advantage, and most players don't make a pair, that's just the math, if we both have two hands and you put three cards out, more often than not, neither of us have anything, so I felt that I'm going to win this hand more often than not, just a small pot, but I'll show him, he'll get upset with me, he re-raised me with 7-2, and he's going to play bad at me for the rest of this table. Unfortunately for him, I believe he made an ace, and I made sevens and twos, and I made a full house while he also had ace. So he just got a really bad result where he made a big hand, and I just made a bigger one with crap. And uh, <laughs> it did frustrate him, though. He was pretty pretty frustrated by that and, and kind of came after me afterwards. And then I ended up making sure I had it in the future and was able to punish him. So you, so you will make certain choices because you know later on this will come back and help me because exactly. you think exactly you gotta <laughs> always be planning i mean poker is way more complex than the average person thinks 
But you don't have to be on that complex level to enjoy it, you know? I mean, poker is a fun game for all. You see people play, you know, a bunch of guys I know, I have a lot of friends who aren't involved in poker, and they invite me to their poker game where they want to, but they're afraid. And they're like, oh, you're just going to come beat us, or you won't enjoy it. And I don't have to always be a killer. You know, if I'm coming to someone's fun home game or a charity event or anything where there's poker at, I can go and just have fun and keep it on a base level and just joke but, and, and but goof if around. We, if we took, let's say, James Harden sure. to go to any home game, he would destroy them, right? He wouldn't, in basketball, he would not be able to destroy them. So if you walk into some home game, putting away the social mechanism of, I'm not going to show you my skill because it's a nice game, but you're going to do your thing. Are you going to just destroy these amateurs? Most of the time, yeah. Almost, almost certainly, yeah. So what separates you as a great player from the super elites, Phil Ivey, Phil Helmuth, Doyle Brunson, et cetera? What, what is the difference? Uh, it's funny. So the guys you named are the, are the public super elites. Okay. But, and, and they're friends of mine. Phil Helmuth uh, is a friend of mine. Phil Ivey used to be one of my best friends. I, I love Doyle. Different philosophies, different ideologies. He's an, you know, he's an old white Texas guy. So, mm-hmm. but we get along. I mean, he respects me. I'm a Texas boy. But uh, they're not the super elites, unfortunately. I mean, they're the most known. They have uh, the most fame. But uh, the way the game is now, man, the game is so complex and technical that the super elites are a lot of guys the, the general public doesn't really know about. Like I mean, who? the poker players know. Like a guy right now who just won this event I did the commentary for, Stefan Sontheimer. He's a German guy. And this guy won the main event, won a preliminary event, got second of these super high roller events that were $50,000 and $100,000 to buy in, to enter. And it was all the best of the best. He just dominated the series. Um, let's see. Right now, the key, there's a guy named Fedor Holes. The key, the biggest names in poker right now who are the most successful and the best is a core group of Germans. It's about six guys, and they pretty much win everything that you see on the uh, the high roller circuit, which is the buy-ins of 100000 and higher, and they just dominate. And they're the elite. And then there's a lot of elite Americans, you know, a guy named David Peters. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. A guy named Dan Coleman. Um, let's think of some other names here. Ben Lamb. Brandon Adams, these guys were recently in this tournament. Justin Bonomo, Isaac Haxton, Scott Seaver, those are New York guys. These guys are the elite of the elite. And it's funny, you know, based on their look, you probably haven't heard of them. And unless you're a diehard poker fan, you don't know these guys yeah. because they didn't really come to prominence when poker was really big on TV. Okay. And their personalities, the guys you listed, have sort of a, an aura to them. Like Phil Hellman's personality, he's loud and brash. Phil Ivey is, is kind of a quiet assassin, but he still has some swag that people like. Yeah. Doyle wears the cowboy hat. He's the old country cowboy gambler. Yeah. These new guys don't have that persona that you're used to that, to make a TV star or to make a star. They, their star power comes from their poker results and their poker chops. But to get back to your question, and I was just laughing because I think if you look in the poker community – the, a lot of the outsiders would say what you said about the elites, and I think on, on, a, on a certain level, I, those guys aren't any – I'm not afraid of those guys. I'll put it that way. Not to, I don't want to fire yeah. any shots at my friends, no. but I, I can hang with those guys. The new guys, that, to answer your question, what the difference is the, the work. They put in more work. They dedicate their life to it. They study. They study, study, study. They talk to each other, and I don't do that anymore. I did in the, I did early 2000s when I was one of the best, when I was in the top five or top ten poker players in the world. But I found that there's more to life than just 
diving into poker, you know, 100%, which to get back to how we started this about the jack of all trades, master of none, I don't want to submerge myself 100% in poker. I have a six-year-old daughter who is my life. I love nothing more than spending time with her. I still play Magic the Gathering, and if I were a billionaire, I don't think I would play poker ever. I would, I would play Magic for my hobby. Do you need to work? Uh, yes and no. I mean, do I need to work in the sense to, to eat, to put food on the table? No. Do I need to work because I never want to stop and be complacent and say I have enough and this is all I want in life? Of course. I mean, one day I've always said since I was little, I, I will own a plane, you know, I'm not going to get a plane if I don't continue to work. If I continue to do things and do projects and, and work on other, you know, other business ideas I have, I'll have that plane one day. So, so the, the tip-top level guys are just more obsessed, more deeply steeped in the numbers and the patterns and Oh, yeah, the and they work together. They're, we call it in the lab. They're in the lab all day, every day. You know, they're, they're, tr- they're playing every tournament they can. They're putting in the hours. They're playing a lot. They're discussing with other elite mind pros ideas and concepts. They're uh, tracking everything they do online and running numbers and saying, okay, well, is this play working out? Is this something we should be doing? I mean, they're taking it so seriously that the results are going to come when you, when you put that kind of work into something. And, and, I mean, at that level, are they – able to change some of the conventional wisdom of, you know, we always do this oh, on, a, sure. on an ace-king, and they're like, no, if you play it out, it's actually better to... They're, they're, they're definitely breaking ground and coming up with new concepts and new ways, new complex ways that I don't even understand yet, because I'm just not into that. I mean, something that really will show you the difference, too. So, you mentioned Phil Helmuth, and I don't know if you're familiar with or any of the listeners, Daniel Negreanu. He's one yeah. of the most famous poker players in the world. Canadian guy. Kid poker. Kid poker. Good friend of mine. I love kid poker. Probably was the first person in poker I looked up to before I was on the scene back in 04. I just thought he was amazing. And he's become a friend of mine, someone who's very uh, important in my life. And Daniel was in this series of uh, these high roller tournaments that, was, that were in Vegas a few weeks ago that I was the commentator on. The ones I mentioned, that guy Stefan Santimer dominated. So Daniel and Phil Helmuth played them. And they were pretty much two of the only old school big names playing with all these young wizards, as we call them, the young geniuses. And they both didn't have great showings, Phil and Daniel. And the difference in how they reacted to that speaks volumes to who they are and how they feel, but also to what's just going on with poker right now. Uh, Daniel, after he was eliminated, tweeted, after these this week or this week, I'm, just, I'm paraphrasing, after this week of tournaments with these pros, I've come to realize that I am nowhere near as good as them. Which, coming from someone like Daniel, who is one of the best in the world, he's like, I am not on the level of these guys. They are so much more ahead of me, but I am inspired. And at this age, I am determined to get my – he's like, I'm probably – I think he said somewhere in the 100th best poker player compared to these guys. He goes, my goal is to study the game and continue to try to strive to be like them and hopefully by the end of the year be where I consider myself, maybe in the top 20 or top 5 or whatever he said, but get to that level. But I'm going to work hard and do this. Hats off to these guys. He – that is very humble for mm. someone to do. Yeah. Someone who's been in the game as he has, as long as he has, and had the success he has, to acknowledge that some new guys have passed him up. And it's easy to deny that and all oh, these guys are lucky and just keep fighting it. But he said, you know what? These guys are better. And I'm going to do whatever I can to get on their level because Daniel's passion in life is poker. This guy loves it, kid poker. He wants it, eats it, breathes it. And he doesn't want to not be the best. So he's going to do everything he can. 
Phil Helmuth's reaction to this was, Daniel, you're wrong. These guys aren't that good. They're, they're, they're lucky. I would love to beat. I can beat these guys. And it kind of turned into like a Twitter beef that people love, like Daniel versus Phil. Daniel's like, Phil, you're crazy. You're not on these guys' level either. What are you talking about? And it went back and forth. And again, I'm not trying to talk bad about Phil. I love Phil, but Phil does have a lot of ego. Everyone sees it. But I think Phil would be better served if he acknowledged, like Daniel did, you know what? These guys are better. And I do need to make some changes and some improvement if I want to be elite and get on their level. But he didn't do it. So I think the lesson learned from that is, A, these guys are incredible, these new guys dominating. But you got to keep working. you got to stay at it. You're never going to be able to just stay at the top because there's always somebody below you hungry. I mean, it works in sports, works in everything. you got to keep honing your craft. And for me, I don't want to do that in poker right now. Maybe when my daughter goes to college in 10 more years and I decide, you know what, I want to get back into poker and go hardcore and be one of the best – Maybe I'll get in the lab, as they say. But for me, that's not for me right now. What I know you said Phil Ivey is not <laughs> the super elite, but he's super famous. And he's, he's still one of the best in the world. He's still Better than me. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. 
This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. What what makes Phil Ivy so great? You know, I think Phil has the best instincts of anyone in the world when it comes to poker. And I think his natural talent, his natural ability to just figure things out and figure out the right play is better than none. Like these guys who are ultra elite, the difference in them and Phil is not even that big. It's tiny. And they put hours and hours and hours in the lab, as we say. Phil never does that, you know. Phil is just natural talent. And he adapts. He learns. He gets better. He improves from playing you. So he sort of is like a, like a sponge. Like he would play, he might play these guys, and they're better than him now. But I think if he played them for hundreds of hours without even studying, just played them, at the end of that session, he's going to be j- better than these guys because he just picks up very well on what's going on. But from, I don't, like I say, I don't know. Phil's playing in Macau. He's playing cash games in Asia, Philippines right now. He's not on, in America playing a lot of tournaments anymore. So he's still playing, but his caliber of opponents are different than a lot of these guys. If he wanted that, he could easily go to these tournaments with these, these you know, new geniuses and in, in time quickly catch up to them and pass them without even studying, just from playing them because he's just, just knowing better. Your highlight was 2004, go into the World Series of Poker, main draw, get to the final table, finish number two yeah. to Greg Raymer. Um, what did you do right in that tournament? You know, it's a real easy answer, too. I've said this. I was just very aggressive before the poker world really figured out to be aggressive. And what I mean by that is 2004, poker hadn't had it. The boom had just really started, but people were still playing at a very basic level. And what I mean by that is back in the old days, and even up until that point, now I say the old days, I'm talking about the 70s, 80s. I didn't play back then, but I've seen hand histories. I've talked about it. People didn't raise without real hands. And if they did, when somebody re-raised them, they always had a real hand. So it was easy to fold. What I mean, like, say I raise, and I can raise with anything, and that's fine. But if you re-raised me back in 1990 and 1980, that meant you had it. You weren't messing around. You had a pair of jacks, a pair of queens, or more. And I could just fold my hand. People were a lot more straightforward. And it was still sort of like this, I realized, back in 2002 and three when I was playing. So in 2004, I took it to another level. I was like, you know what? If people believe that, and they always give you credit, and they fold, they're folding too much. So I'm going to raise a little more. I'm going to raise back, even if I don't have it. So I would raise with junk, and somebody would re-raise me. And I'm like, well... That means they have it. Normally, that means if a guy has it, you fold. But what if I re-re-raise? What if I come back over the top? They're going to really say, whoa, I, this guy raised and I raised him, and now he raised me again? He must have a huge hand. Why would he do that? No one does that without it. And they fold it. And I had people folding big hands to me because I would raise again, and they just believed me. And I was able to accumulate so many chips that when I did get caught with my hand in the cookie jar, when I didn't make that move and I got caught, it didn't hurt me as much because I'd accumulated so many chips from doing it that the, the loss just put me down a little bit, just a little downset, and I could keep going. And everyone in the poker tournament didn't know about the, this style of playing yet. It just wasn't a thing, and there wasn't televised poker. People didn't know me. They just thought I was some kid who just made a bad move. And I got to do this for five straight days, just run people over, just re-raise, just pound people, pound them into submission, accumulate their chips until it was too late, and get to the end. Now, 
By 2005, people started figuring this out. By 2006 or seven, everybody was aggressive. It was just a maniacs everywhere, just re-raising everybody with nothing. I mean, it, it got out of hand because people were obviously going to see that that produced results, and it's going to change the landscape of poker, and people online poker started doing it. And all of a sudden, everyone was so aggressive that the right move was to kind of tone it back and be a lot more passive and let it come to you. So what did I do, what did I do right in 2004? I was one of the, the first people to really start just being crazy hyper-aggressive. I think in that time period, Gus Hansen was known for that. Uh, there was a couple other guys, but not many people were doing it. And I just kind of steamrolled my way. And in addition, a big part of it is just luck. I mean, as much as you do the right thing, you still have to be lucky. You still have to be fortunate. Because you could do all the right things, and if your aces get cracked, and that's all your chips, nothing you can do about it. So you got to be lucky, too. So I'm not trying to say that I was just this great player and outplayed everybody. No, I did. But I was also very fortunate. Things worked out for me in bad situations. But the luck is distributed evenly. Sure, some people might be luckier. But at the end of the day, at the end of a lifetime, it's all even in a poker table. You just yeah. have to make the right decisions and let, that, let the rest of it, you know, chips fall where they may. When you finish second and you win $3.5 million, but you could have won five. $5 million. And maybe another 10 in value of, of, from being the champion. Yeah, I mean... Are you like, wow, second, three and a half million? Or are you like, damn, it was right there to be one of the all-time gods? So, first of all, it wasn't really about money. It was about being the world champion. It was about realizing a dream that had been many years in the making that, was, that is a highly improbable dream, first of all, right? For any one individual to be the World Series champion, main event, right now, taking skill out of it, just... If you just put everybody in, right now there's about 7,000 players. You're one in 7,000. Even if you're the best player in the field, if you're Phil Ivey, he's never won. You still might be one in 5,000, one in three. That's still crazy chance. Back then I was one in 2,500 players, right? And the year before with Chris Moneymaker it was 893. So let's say I thought it was going to be 1,200 people. That's still something I would be one in 1,200 if everybody played the same. So that's crazy odds. And I got that close, and I thought, you know what? This could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I might never, most likely, more often than not, I will never be heads up in the main event of the World Series. I'm going to do everything I can to get there, but I'm, I might not. And I got that close and lost. It's like you ask uh, Phil Sims, right? He was the quarterback. Who yep. got, you Giants, ask her, any, yep. any, who was the Bills quarterback? Uh, Jim, Jim Kelly. Kelly. You ask Jim Kelly. How happy are you? Lost you got four, four, four second places. That's great. He's going to say, no, it's not. If you're a competitor, losing in the finals sucks. And obviously it was great, a great payday, but once I get to where there's two people left, right, when it's me and Greg Raymer heads up, we're not playing. I'm not, it's not looking like, oh, I'll get $3.5 million. $3.5 million is – we're both going to get at least $3.5 million. It's two guys playing for the championship and everything that comes with it and the bracelet, the fame, being immortalized, and another million and a half. That $3.5 million is, is already locked up. That's not what you're playing for. But this speaks to how good my life is actually for a while – well, what I'm about to say, because it's kind of, if you think about it, really, people would ask me, what's the, the worst day of your life and what's the best day of your life? Like if you ever fill out a question, an interview. And I always said, that's the same day. And they, well, I go, the day I got second in the main event of the World Series. And I'm like, that was the best day of my life, but it was also the worst day of my life, which says I've had a pretty blessed life if that's the worst day of my life. And then at that moment, I hadn't really experienced death of anyone close to me. I hadn't experienced divorce or real heartbreak. So that was the worst day of my life, but it was also the best day of my life. When that day ended, when that final card came out and I was eliminated and I was second place, I felt broken inside. And I really wanted to just break down and cry. 
it was hard to do because I had so many friends and family in the audience. So many people flew out for me. Your I had a girlfriend, there. my mother, my girlfriend at the time, all my best friends. I had, a best, had best friends from all over the country fly out to be at that final table and cheer me on. And I had the media that it looks ungrateful if I just start sobbing and looking sad. I mean, they're like, what the hell? You just went three and a half million. So I kept on a, a good face. I smiled with the photo with the champion. When, when it was done, my friends were high five and let's go celebrate. And deep inside, I really wanted to say, you know, I want to go somewhere alone and just cry. And I was able to cover. I was like, you know, guys, this has been a seven-day tournament all day, every day. I'm exhausted. I'm like, let's party tomorrow. Let's celebrate tomorrow. I really needed to just decompress. I need to go home, lay down, and just let it all out. And they were like, oh, yeah, no, that's cool. I said, we'll have a good big dinner, and we'll go out and party right. Went back to my, the place I was staying, my friend's house. Um, with my girlfriend, we went and we closed the door, and then I just started crying. And she's like, what's wrong? I was like, I, I, I blew it. I blew it. And I was pretty depressed. We celebrated the next day, but inside I was still depressed. And I think that depression didn't start to go away until I got home later in the week and went to the bank with that check. And when I took that check to the bank, <laughs> and, I, better. and I, I looked at it and realized, holy shit, I'm a millionaire. I was like, this is crazy. Because a week ago, I was... You know, I was okay, but I was, I was just a college student. I wasn't a millionaire. I'm a millionaire. This is crazy. When you went to the bank with a $3.5 million check. That's a funny little story. Approximately, how much did you have in the bank? Uh, maybe 3500 $2,000. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, too. Nowadays, it's all electronic and wired. But this was at Binion's. And I make it sound like 2004 is so long ago, but it really was in 17 years. They hand wrote me a check, which is kind of funny. They said, do you want cash or check or a check? What am I going to do with that much cash? I don't put it in a giant bag and get on a plane. No. <laughs> I'm like, I will take a check. You would think they would go to a computer and print you out a nice check or even offer a wire. No, they brought out a big, one of those big business checkbooks and had the bank man or the, the cage manager at the casino at Binion's. She wrote $3,500,000. Or $3, she hand wrote it. And she actually had, a, had to like type, had to scratch out an initial <laughs> I didn't even start over. So she gives me this check that I was guarding with my life, terrified. I finally got home, and I went to my bank. And I was a 23-year-old at the time, 23-year-old black kid in Dallas. And I didn't really, you know, I didn't think I needed to dress up to go to the bank. I go in, like, wind, wind pants and a T-shirt, and I walk into the bank. And I remember I walked up and said I need to make a deposit. And the teller looked at the check, looked back at me, looked at the check and kind of Hold on a minute. <laughs> Walks away with the check, comes back with the bank manager, makes me goes, "What is this?" And I was like, "It's my winnings. I would like to deposit in my account." And he's like, "And I pull up, and I, luckily I had a copy of the Dallas Morning News. I think there was like I was on the cover, and I pull up and show him. I go, this is me." He's like, "Oh, Mr. Williams, thank you. Here, let's go have a seat." <laughs> and took me around, but it was funny their initial reaction. Right. And and don't, I don't for all those listening, I wasn't just going to leave it in the bank. Obviously, I needed to. I, I got an investment manager, and I, I put it in. A, you know, I I invested my money wisely and took care of it. But initially, I had to do something. I didn't want to sit at my house with a check. <laughs> I mean, if I lost it, I could go back to Binion's and say, hey, I need to cancel and reissue. But, but it's not someone can't really steal and go cash a check for that amount. <laughs> but I needed to put it somewhere sure. until I figured out what I wanted to do. So I went to the bank and did that, and I felt a little better. But I truly didn't get over. Over it because I was still depressed. I would think about it. I think not a day went by that we're in the shower. I didn't think about if I made mistakes heads up with Greg Raymer. And I finally, it was like a monkey off my back in 2010, six years later, almost to the day. It was toward the end of May or end of April, somewhere in that spring of 2010. 
I won the WPT World Championship, which was a $25,000 buy-in tournament for $1.6 million. It was a really elite tournament with a lot of the top pros. Difficult event. One that had meant a lot to me because I had played it a lot and done well, and it was at the Bellagio, which was like my home casino at the time. I still love the Bellagio, but now I play at the Aria. Shout out to the Aria. But, um, <laughs> and I won that tournament. And when I won that tournament, it was like I finally felt relieved. I could finally breathe. I was finally a champion of an elite world championship mm. event. I have the title world champion. Granted, it wasn't the World Series world champion. It was the World Poker Tour, which is still one of the most prestigious poker tours. But the minute I won that tournament is when it all sort of kind of like, okay, I don't care anymore about losing the main event of the World Series to Greg Raymer. Fine with that. Did you conclude that you made a mistake against Greg? Well, I had never played heads-up poker before. Heads-up is one-on-one. Right. I'd never done that before. When I, so when I faced Greg Raymer for the World Championship, I'd never been in that position in poker. I had no practice. I had no knowledge of it. I didn't know what to do. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I made mistakes. I didn't conclude it then because there's no one specific thing I can pinpoint. I, it was all. I just did not play optimally for the situation. I think if I could take my mindset now and just stick it in me back in 2004 – it would definitely be a hell of a contest because la- it was seven hands. It lasted like five minutes, and it was over. Yeah. You put me my current mindset in me back then you know, with what I know about heads-up poker, I'm at least going to make it a good game. It's going to be a tough challenge for Greg. It's not going to be just he got to walk all over me, and I kind of blew it. What is the pressure of playing when you're going after millions now? I mean, do you, do you feel it, or are you, or are you desensitized to money? Um, it's, it's a combination. I don't feel it, you know. The few times I've been in that position, the handful, I've been, I've been, you know, I've actually had, because I had the same pressure on a show called The King of Vegas where I could have won a million dollars, MasterChef finale. It wasn't a million, but it was pretty big. You know, I've been in a lot of high-pressure situations, and, and there's money involved in most. And I think that's what allows me to be successful in, in gambling and such. as I don't feel it. I'm able to separate all of that, you know, as soon as the lights come on, I would say in the MasterChef, when, as soon as the, the timer started, all that went away. Or at the poker table, I'm nervous before it starts. I'm pacing at a final table. And then as soon as you sit and they start dealing those cards, all that goes away. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's just something just ingrained in me. It's not about being desensitized to the money. I mean, I think you need to be desensitized to be successful, successful at poker at all stages, cash games, tournaments, early, late. But I think the pressure of the of the situation of being so close to victory in something i think you have to kind of put that out of your mind and stop thinking about that because that'll distract you from making good decisions if you want to be successful i think if you ask some of the best athletes in the world while they're out there shooting a free throw in the nba finals game seven they're not thinking oh my god it's game seven in the nba finals if i do they're just taking free throw make it free throw make it make this shot steal you know and then when it's over then you get to look at what's going on. Because yeah. when I got second in the World Series, a lot of people ask me about, I, re, like I was able to tell you about raising and being aggressive, yeah. but I can't remember anything specific about during those seven days. Because, and when I won the World Poker Tour Championship. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, 
I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. I really don't remember much specific about those seven days because I was so honed in and focused and just erase what happened, focus on the next hand, that when it finally ended, all that emotion was devoid. And now it gets to come in. When I won the World Poker Tour, I also collapsed and cried and felt like something because I hadn't let any emotion out or hadn't thought. I was just so like a zombie. I called myself a poker zombie, just so z- honed in on the goal and just focusing on each individual decision that I never thought about the goal until it was over. Take me more inside that, the competitive mindset when you're at the table. Because you talked about the strategic things that you're thinking about. But, you know, it, it, it's very similar to being a professional athlete. And, you know, when the athletes are out there, some of them are – fueling themselves one way, certain mental fuel, others use different mental fuel, anger, joy, whatever. What is the internal voice as you're going through a tournament? Are you confident? Are you pessimistic? Like, what is the internal fuel? I think it's all of the, all of the above. I mean, I, mostly for me, it's confidence, but you, you can't be overconfident, and you have to know that. And a lot of it is, is desire to succeed, just as a desire to win. I really just like to win things. You know, I've been very competitive in everything I do from a small child playing Scrabble with my mother, you know, in, in, the, in the first and second grade. I just like to win. I like, like to be competitive. You like to win more than you hate to lose? Uh, I think now as I've gotten older, yeah. I think when I was younger, I just hated to lose. <laughs> but I've become more positive in life and, and accept that losing happens. I think you have to understand in poker you are going to lose more often than you win in poker. That doesn't mean you're going to lose more money, but no one has won, no one who over a large sample size has won more tournaments than they've lost when they enter because you only win a tournament. Let's say the best of the best only win maybe 5% of their tournaments, maybe even less. You're going to be eliminated. And even, you're going to lose most of your hands. You're going to lose most hands. Now, not only the hands you play, most hands you're dealt. Right. The ones you play, you should be winning those more than you lose because right. you're, you're playing them because they're better quality hands. But yeah, so you have to understand you're going to lose sometimes in poker. It is not chess. Chess, and what I mean by that is there is luck. There is variance. There is randomness. In chess, there is no randomness. If, if I play a grandmaster or if you play a grandmaster, we are not going to beat them. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> I mean, if they play their best and we play their best, it's not going to happen. Now, in poker... If I were to play a person off the street who we just taught the rules, they might actually – they're going to win some hands. And if we set up a structure with enough variance in it, they might win a session. Now, if we played forever, if you took me and an amateur and we played and locked us in a room for the end of time, I'm going to win more often than not. That's just a fact. 
but you have to accept you're going to lose. So I think for me, it's the desire to win, to be the champion. I love that. Love winning. <laughs> you know what it is? When you win a poker tournament, you have no second guessing. Even if you right. made some mistakes throughout right. it, it doesn't matter. I won. But if you, if you lose, you always have something you can second guess. Should I have done something different? Like, I just had some heartbreak, and it's, it's, it's kind of nerdy, and you're going to laugh. This weekend, I played a magic tournament in Rhode Island. Magic the Gathering. Uh, it was a team tournament, and it was in Rhode Island uh, this, this Saturday and Sunday. And I play on my way to New York for a wedding this weekend. And me and my two teammates were in first place after 11 rounds, and it was a 14-round tournament. We needed one win in the final three rounds to make the cut for the playoffs. We ended up losing all three. And in the first of those three, it came down to the ninth game of the series, the final game. And me and my teammates conferred, and we made a, we made a bad choice that we ended up losing because of, and then it spiraled out. And then we lost the next round and lost the last one and did not make the cut to the playoffs. And even to this day, me and my teammates are talking like, why did we do what we did in that round 13, that mistake we made? And we, can, we, can't, we can't shake it. Obviously, we'll shake it in a few days, but it, just, it hurts to blow it and know you blew it, know you made a mistake. But ha- what, the point of this is, had we won the tournament anyways, like let's say the next round, we wouldn't even be talking about that mistake. You learn more from losing than from winning. It's part of what you're driving towards. Yeah, if but- you lose and get a lesson... Yeah, then that loss is a valuable loss. But you, you're very smart. You're very successful. You know you're fucking good. How do you avoid being overconfident? Well, you got to get humbled. <laughs> you get your ass handed to you a few times, and that overconfidence will stop. I believe in 2005 and six, I was overconfident because everything I touched turned to gold. Granted, I didn't win all the tournaments, but I was final tabling every tournament, winning hundreds of thousands of dollars every weekend, and I just felt like invincible. Then you have a downswing. You have a bad few years. You have a few years where you can't win a pot. You can't make a second day. You can't cash in a tournament. You have that happen. That'll humble your ass real quick. When you have a bad year in poker, how do you keep going? How do you maintain the confidence? How do you not say, maybe I shouldn't do this, or maybe I should change, and then you change in a way that screws up your whole style? I mean, that's a, that's a question that a lot of people don't have the answer to, and that's why you see a lot of guys disappear in poker, a lot of guys who were hot and you just never hear from them again. But for me, what I did was, and it's culminated with me winning that world championship, is I hired a mindset coach. Really? I hired a guy named Sam Chauhan, who's still a good friend of mine, and he was kind of a renowned mindset coach in poker, uh, very just into affirmations and being positive and envisioning, just seeing yourself and meditation and mindfulness, and I, I, I looked, searched, searched out for him, and got with him, and we came up with a plan, and he had lots of things going on with me. I had to do my gratefuls every morning, which is write an email to him of three things I'm grateful for, and it couldn't, I couldn't just mail it in. It couldn't just be like money, daughter. I had to like think Specific of th- things. three things I am grateful for every day. I had to do positive affirmations with him every day, and we, we talked on the phone if he wasn't in Vegas, and if not, we met, and it's where... I really yelled and believed, I am the best. And, you know, just really, I would go on my balcony and just shout this for a few minutes. And it sounds cheesy, and I'm a very— What did you shout? Uh, I am great. Was, I mean, it changed. He would tell you. He would get you hyped up. It, he was very good at this. He would, on the phone, he would, you can do this. He would, it would just motivational, get you amped up. And at the end, he would, like, on three, I want to hear you shout, I am great. I am, you know, and you would just, yeah, yeah. And I would come out of there, adrenaline pumping, feeling real good about myself. And it kind of helped get that confidence back. Uh, he had me meditate, sent me guided meditations a lot to listen to, and a lot of things about envisioning yourself winning and, and just seeing 
yourself making better plays and really thinking. And, and there's a lot of value in meditation. I mean, a lot of value in clearing your mind. So all these things, and my results started improving again, and I ended up winning the WPT World Championship. And I think the reason I won it is because I was able to not let the downswings distract me in that tournament. There were times where I lost some really big pots based on either I did something wrong or I got unlucky, and I was able to just shake it off and just keep playing. And, and the other players noticed it. One of my good friends, Josh, pointed out I lost a really big pot, and he came over. He's like, Dave, don't worry, don't worry, Like, which is not rare. You sit at the poker table. People try to help other people. We were friends. And I looked at him and shrugged. and go, I'm fine. He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't matter. And he, to someone who just lost the amount of chips I lost in that pot, say, it doesn't matter. And I said, I'm going to win anyways. And three days later, I won. But it was just I was so able to shrug off any negativity. Right. So the, the mindset coach helped you to be positive, be grateful. Be present. That was his big thing. Always be present. And by being present, it helped twofold. It helped to not look at the past, something we talked about in the beginning, to not worry about the chips I used to have when you – that's not being present. If you're worrying about, oh, I used to have 50 chips and now I have 20, you're not being present. You have 20. And also to not worry about the future. Oh, I need to get to the finals. There's only – worry about now. Be present. Being present applies in so many different ways to all of our lives, and we could all help. We could all have better lives if we were always present and aware of the moment and living in the moment. Is the life as exciting as it seems? Uh, it was. For sure. You know, when I was a young, a young single bachelor, you know, I, I would say I had one of the most incredible lives I could ever imagine. I mean, I, my friends all lived vicariously through me, and it's still a pretty incredible life. I'm not going to lie, but it's just a lot different now. You know, I'm not out with women all the time partying, and I, I knew a lot of celebrities, and I hung out with celebrities a lot and traveled all the time, didn't have a care in the world. My job was just playing poker tournaments, you know. I was I was living the life, you know, the high life. Had a Bentley at 25, you know, living in a high-rise condo in Vegas. I mean, yeah, I was I was the man in the materialistic sense and tons of friends and everyone knew me in all the clubs. I mean, yeah, it was it was a great fun life. But we 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 grow, we change. And, you know, I'm a vastly different person than I am now. I mean, like I said, I'm my life right now is really single dad. Uh, I have a 6-year-old by myself. Um uh, her mother and me were married, and we divorced, and we were co-parenting amicably in Las Vegas, and she uh, met someone, started a new relationship, and, got, and started a new family, but unfortunately, he lives in Austin, and she wanted to start her life there with her new child, and the new child to find her husband in Austin, which I don't fault her for, uh, but she wanted my daughter to go with her, and I wanted my daughter to go with me, and again, I don't fault her. I mean, that's, she's fighting for her child, and we right. went to court. And the courts sided with me. And it's no knock on her parenting. She's a fantastic mother. She's uh, watching my daughter now. She's not watching. It's her own daughter. My daughter's with her now. Right. So uh, I'm very thankful that we co-parent well. so well. I, I'm sad she left, and she did everything she could to, to win the case. But, you know, because she has a new baby. If this is prying, then just oh, let no. me know. But uh, And I wouldn't have gone here, but you, yeah, you no, brought no, up. No, I'm pretty open. But it's, it's so rare for a man, for a sure. father, to win custody of Everyone his child. Everyone says that. So how did you win that case? The, the simple answer is the judge at the end said, well, I'll get the complicated. The, 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 the good answer, the correct answer is I'm an incredible father. And I'm, I know it's, it sounds very cocky to say that, but I'm just going to be straightforward. I dedicate my life to my daughter. You know, I've cut out. I don't really play poker anymore. I don't 
travel very much anymore. I wake up every morning at 6 a.m. I get her ready for school, make lunch, cook dinner. I go over, I'm very into academics. I mean, I am very hands-on. I am a, a, every woman I know who doesn't have a father figure in their child's life says, oh my God, I wish my child had a father like you. And I think that's because I didn't have one growing up and maybe I just know how important it is and I want to be. And I know little girls, I know I've seen a lot of broken women living in Vegas being a kind of a Lothario back in the day that I know how important a very strong father figure is. And I made that important to me, even when we were co-parenting and I had her for one week and her mother lived down the street and had her for one week. I made sure I was just number one dad, all I could be. And the judge, so that's the, 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 the tough part, but the judge basically realized that. And she said, we had a female judge. I literally thought I had no chance. Female judge, being a male, the judge said, you know, you are both incredible parents. You're both very – she's like, I've never had a case like this where it's two parents, and I can't find anything wrong with them. They're both great parents. And she's like, and you guys get along, and you co-parent well, and you speak highly of each other, which we do. Me and my ex-wife are good friends. She goes, so at the end of the day, I have to look out what's best for the child. And she says, I think the child is, five, at the time of our case, five years old. She was born and raised in Las Vegas. She goes to school in Las Vegas. Every friend she has, everything she knows, everything about the world she knows is here. She told the mom, my, my ex-wife, that you are choosing to move. If David were choosing to move and said, I'm taking Lily, I would tell him no. Lily stays here. You're making a choice to go, so I'm going to allow you that choice because I cannot tell you you cannot move. But if you move, your daughter stays, and I would tell the same to him. So by being the one choosing to move, that's your choice. And she says, because I don't feel it would be in her best interest to send her there to someone you've only been dating, or she was engaged at the time, she wasn't married yet, my ex-wife, you've only been with for less than a year, especially considering you both were previously married or engaged, the, the failure rate is high, the probability. I would hate to send this little girl to Texas with you. You guys split up, and now you find someone else. Or She goes, she needs stability, especially at this age, so I'm going to rule that she stays. Now, you're more than welcome to stay, she told my ex-wife, and if you do, you guys will continue to have joint custody. If you choose to leave, that's your choice. And my ex-wife was put in a bad spot, and I feel bad for her. And a lot of people are like, how do you feel bad for her? You know, No, no but not you, but a lot of people judge. No, but you care about her as a person And still. I said, you know, A, she's my daughter's mother, but B, yeah. she's looking out for her and her new baby. She, her new baby... His, her father, she's with. If she tells him, sorry, I'm staying, they might split up. Now she's in Vegas with two children. I'm not with her, and I'm, we're not getting back together. We, we're, we're done. You know, We're friends, but we're not together. So she's going to have my daughter with me, who's not with her, a new son who's a newborn with a husband she's in love with who maybe you know, maybe they, they stay together. Probably don't if, they, if she says, I'm sorry, I'm staying here. So she's got to do what she's got to do, and she fought hard. I don't blame her for fighting, going to court. She did everything she could, and the court rules against her. Now, I do say this. Had I lost that case, had the judge said, no, I'm sending her to Austin, I would no longer be a resident of Las Vegas. I would be a resident of Austin, Texas, and I would live down the street, and I would continue my custody. So, But I didn't have a child with a mom in one city, so it's a little easier for me to say that I would have moved than for her to have stayed. Like she, I don't blame her. Wow. wow. Well, thank you for... No, I don't mind. I, I talk about it, and it, it's, you know, because people wonder. They're like, yeah. how do you have a daughter by yourself? Right. Is, people, is the mother alive? You know, I get that question, like, like is, she, is she a drug addict in jail, or what happened? I'm like, no, she's a great mom. She's in Vegas. Right. I told her I was coming here. I said I had a magic tournament at the end of uh, October, September, and then I was going to come to New York for a week to take care of some things and go to a wedding this weekend, which is going to take me out of Vegas for like 10 days. 
and I said, can you please come to Vegas? And she comes and she visits once a month for like three, three to five days a month anyways. But I said, can you come for an extended period so Liliana has you here? Not with a sitter or anything while I go, because I don't actually ever really use sitters. So that's another thing. And I said, You don't use sitters as a single parent? I, I do. I've is started. Your, is your mom? No, I have no one. And that's what my therapist, I go to therapy every week, and not for any reason other than I believe everyone should have someone to talk to and shoot it straight and tell them, you know, someone who could be unbiased and not, also not judgmental. Sure. But uh, no, I actually rarely, if any, use a sitter up until very recently. For the past, I would say, when I've had her, because I'm on my second year of a loan, I didn't have use one at all. And I felt guilty leaving my daughter with someone else. I mean, people who don't have children may not understand yeah. how difficult that is to, you work and I, you never I would need work a from sitter? home. I would only work when she's at school. If she's not, I would not do anything. I mean, it's tough. And my therapist eventually said, David, you have to have a social life. She said earlier this year, she's like, your life consists of drop your daughter at school, work while she's in school, pick her up, be a dad all day and night, go to bed. The only times you get any free time is if maybe she's at a friend's house. You know, she might go to a friend's house on a Saturday from noon to eight or something. Then you do something. Or when your ex-wife comes to town for three to five days, you'll take those five days and do something. And then you go back for the other 25 days of a month and you don't do anything other than with your child. Dinner. Me and my daughter would go to dinner, just the two of us. She said, that's not healthy in a sense. She, she goes, you need to stop feeling guilty and find you a sitter or a babysitter. It doesn't mean leave her all the time. But like if you want to, she goes, I, she goes what, here's what I'm requiring of you. Get a babysitter, hire her, and once a week, have her come at 6 p.m. and put your daughter to bed and go to dinner with your friends. Go on a date. Meet a woman. She goes, you need to do something. You can't just not have a life for yourself or it's going to drive you crazy. I, I mean, So I've started that, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I love my kids to death, but there are times when I get sick of them. No, yeah. And, you know, especially, you know, my wife might go out of town, and I've spent, you know, so I'm approximating being a single dad, and now I've got eight hours straight with you this day, the next day, the next day. And there's a moment I'm like, I really love you, and I don't want to look at you for an hour. No, no, you know? you, and don't you, don't you get to that? Um, not yet. I mean, my little girl is a special, amazing little girl. I'm not saying yours aren't, but she's just, her personality, she's like my little best friend. And, but here's what it is, and, and, and this is why I think I needed to make some change. I don't, ultimately, I look at my childhood, and my mother was a single mom in she, my entire life, and we were like, best friends and it's eerily familiar to what's going on with me now i can remember we would play games together as a child i remember one day she let me skip kindergarten because we hadn't beat the level of this game on nintendo <laughs> or sega we were playing so just we'll, we'll just finish this up just i'll write you a note and say you were sick and we were so close and and it's funny because my, my daughter i just recently started getting her to sleep in her own bed she feels so attached and i remember i slept in my mom's bed until i was maybe the second grade and finally i started sleeping on my own but I thought about it, and I'm like, you know, my mom's always single, probably because she had this kid up her ass all the time, and she couldn't do anything. Eventually, my sister was born when I was eight, but even then, her, my sister's father and her couldn't work it out because I didn't like the guy. And I, she ended up saying, you know, my son doesn't like you, and if you guys can't get along, I'm not going to be with you and make my son not like his stepdad. So I had a sister eventually when I was eight, but then I went off to college at 16. But my mother's life was her children. That's it. She didn't do much. She was a flight attendant and worked, but when she was home, we were hanging out. Me and my mom would go to, I remember we'd go to TGI Fridays on the weekends and play trivia night. 
because my sister stayed with her father sometime, but I didn't have a father. I didn't know my father. So me and my mom, Friday nights, would be in the TGI Fridays at the bar eating wings, playing trivia together as a teenager. And eventually, I branched off and got my own life. I look at my mother's life, and she sacrificed. And even to this day, she's still single. At, at um, she's, I'm 37. She's 62. 25, 62. And she's a very good poker player. She's a very good poker player, but she's still single, and I, I realize that's probably because of me. And then I look at my life with my daughter and how it's playing out the same. We hang out, we laugh, we joke every night. Friday nights is our date night. I take her wherever she wants to eat, sushi, we watch movies. And I'm like, am I, re- am I in a pattern? Am I doing the same thing? Am I going to be 60 years old and alone, kind of like my mother too, who, God bless her, I feel bad. I feel like it's my fault. So I took my therapist's advice, and I, I started feeling not as guilty. She's like, it's called parent guilt, and you got to get over it. you got to be able to go out and let loose and have fun, or you're going to go crazy. And she goes, it's good for your daughter to see you so she doesn't do what you do. If you don't ever date, if you're single, she's not going to know how a man should treat a woman. Mm. She needs to see you with a wife or a girlfriend and see you be a good guy and take her out. So she goes, you know what? I need a man to treat me like my father treated who I see because she doesn't have that. All she has is your mother and her stepfather, her mother and her stepfather, who she doesn't live with. So she's not going to know what a good relationship should look like. So she's like, you need to date. You need to have friends. You need to socialize. So I've started... A little bit more here and there, feeling less guilty. It's amazing. Fatherhood has just changed my life for the better. So this all started when you asked about the life. Yeah. And I've, I've had a, I had the life you imagine as the young, wealthy bachelor in Vegas, but my life now is more reserved. I mean, it's still pretty great. I mean, I still have crazy, you know, I was on a plane the other day, a private plane to L.A., and ended with Mike Tyson was on my plane with me, and then, you know, things like that happen. And my friends are like, what is your life, man? But... You know, at the end of the day, I'm just a parent, man. That's all that matters to me. I'm just a parent, and that's all that matters to me. I know the feeling. Once you have kids, they become the center of your world, and being a parent becomes a major part of your identity, and it's the best. That said, David said a lot of amazing things today. Don't forget about being present. Excellent advice that I try to follow myself. I'm still growing, too. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. I know I did. Thanks for listening, and thanks to David for the time. If you want to talk to me more about this show or anything else, I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, the baddest place in the world. We'll be back next week with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next week when my guest is the great visual artist Kehende Wiley. Painting itself is the most democratizing act of all. It, it doesn't care what your skin color is. If you're a painter and your job is to create the most realistic depiction of a human body, it, because, it becomes a person, it becomes a body, and it becomes just as hard to paint the white body as it does to, to paint the black body. In fact, argumentatively, you can say that I'm best at painting white bodies because that's what I was breastfed on. That premieres next Wednesday on Torre Show. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... 
Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. 